Hey everybody, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Today is episode 91 and we are going to be discussing the Grateful Dead's self-titled debut album for its 55th anniversary. Before we get too carried away, I just want to thank you for stopping by. Uh, I know the amount of a long time that it takes to get through a podcast isn't always easy to come by these days, so I really appreciate you entrusting me with yours. I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. And the handles are listed in the description. If you have an Apple device and an appetite for a bit more content from me, consider subscribing to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the Apple Podcasts exclusive premium spinoff of the show. For $4.99 American per month, you get weekly bonus episodes in addition to priority sequence for topic requests, should you have any, and 10% off of merchandise. Speaking of topic requests, whether you subscribe to premium or not, and there is a one-month free trial, by the way, um, let me know if you have one, uh, especially artist matchups. I've just been doing a Beatles versus Stones series over there on the office hour, and I enjoy doing that sort of thing. I might not do a series for all of them, but it's fun to compare different artists. So let me know if there's a matchup you'd like me to cover. And lastly, I think before we get going, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening, those are very helpful to me. All right, so the Grateful Dead self-titled debut was recorded in just four days in January of 1967 at RCA in Los Angeles. They had lived in L.A. for several months in 66, but were back in San Francisco by this point, I believe. They wanted to record it in San Fran, but there weren't sufficiently modern studios there at the time. David Hassinger was selected as producer as they were impressed with his engineering work on the Stones I Can't Get No Satisfaction and on Jefferson Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow album, which we discussed uh, about a, a month or two ago. Uh, which came out in January, February 67 and was recorded in the fall of 66 in which Jerry Garcia was involved with. So um, they were impressed with Hassinger's work on those two things in particular and chose him as the producer. And it was released on March 17th, 1967. It peaked at number 73 on the Billboard charts does not have any RIAA certifications, which means that it still hasn't sold 500,000 certified units in the States. Crazy to me, given their popularity, even though it wasn't popular at the time, you would think that uh, it would have sold over that threshold by now with the number of deadheads wanting to you know, examine their whole catalog. Having said that, I'm ashamed to admit that as someone who... Uh, professes to be somewhat of an aspiring expert, I will say, since there's a lot of their catalog I still haven't heard uh, on the live side with how many shows they played and stuff. But for someone who uh, takes their dead fandom pretty seriously and has been on the bus for the better part of a decade now, I had not heard this album until this week preparing for this episode. That shows you how f- skewed toward the uh, the live side of things deadhead land is that you always hear you always all about the live stuff with the dead which i agree with but i do think it's important to do the studio discography too and i'm going to listen to the others that i haven't heard yet in full uh now uh not you know 
not going to pause recording and go do it, but you know, uh, some point in the next few weeks, I'm going to listen to the others. Cause I, um, I heard some songs on this. So I was like, wow, I can't believe I heard, haven't heard this before. Um, so anyhow, I suppose it's not surprising that it hasn't been a huge seller, but, um, I think it should have sold more than it did. It was a, a big deal in San Francisco, but failed to garner much attention or airplay beyond that. FM radio was still developing and this album doesn't, I mean, the dead aren't really a, an AM single friendly band. Although I do think one in particular, probably two songs on here could have been, um, the, uh, the production might've, and being a little rough around the edges might've held them back, but I think they had the potential. Uh, anyhow, to that end, Phil writes in his autobiography that, quote, to my ear, the only track that sounds at all like we did at the time is Viola Lee Blues. None of us had any experience with performing for recording, which I'll interject here, performing for recording is far different from performing uh, on stage for an audience. So anyhow, Phil says none of them had any experience performing for recording, quote, the whole process felt a bit rushed, end quote. And Bill shares similar sentiments in his own autobiography, quote, the recorded versions failed to capture the energy that we had when we performed them live. We weren't that good yet. We were still learning how to be a band, end quote. And it's also the only album that they made without Robert Hunter's involvement as a lyricist. He entered the fray a bit later in 67. He and Jerry had known each other for uh, years before that, but Hunter had moved to New Mexico. And um, anyhow, they, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact details, but you know, something, somehow Jerry got it to him that he had started a band and, um, Hunter ends up moving back to the Bay Area and the rest is history. If you uh if you want a more detailed explanation of that part of their story, there is a a deadcast bonus episode or two, maybe just one about Hunter, and it goes through all of that in great detail. Um I'm just forgetting at the moment and it's not it's kind of a tangent to this episode, but anyhow, this album is interesting in that sense that it's the only dead album without Robert Hunter lyrics. So that kind of leads right into the track by track observations. We'll, as usual, we'll do that. And then the general thoughts about the album, where I think it fits in the dead's catalog, how I score it, where I think it ranks overall in music and, uh, yeah. All right. So track one is the golden road which is one of two originals on the album and is credited to the whole band. Its lyrics are as follows. Verse 1, See that girl barefooting along, whistling and singing, she's a carrying on. There's laughing in her eyes, dancing in her feet. She's a neon light diamond, and she can live on the street. And then the chorus, Hey, 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 come right away. Come and join the party every day. Hey, 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 come right away. Come and join the party every day. Verse 2. Well, everybody's dancing in a ring around the sun. Nobody's finished. We ain't even begun. So take off your shoes, child, and take off your hat. Try on your wings and find out where it's at. 
and then the chorus again, and then a guitar solo. And then verse three, take a vacation, fall out for a while. Summer's coming in and it's going out of style. Well, light up smoking honey, have yourself a ball. Cause your mother's down in Memphis, won't be back till the fall. And then the chorus repeated twice. So you've got romance in the first verse. Um, you got partying in the second. You got escapism in the third. You're all wrapped up in one here, which are uh, three themes the dead would often cover. You got an invocation to climb aboard and let loose. And uh, I think it's a, a perfect page one of their story. You know, perfect first song of their career, kicking off the debut album. Uh, Nobody's finished. We ain't even begun. Then musically speaking, nice psychedelic organ intro from Pigpen. He was playing a Vox Continental at this point, which is what Ray Manzarek plays on the first several Doors albums. Uh, Classic psychedelic keyboard sound that I always associate. I think most probably do when they hear it with the Doors because of how uh, singular of a player Manzarek was. But um, yeah, Pigpen sounds great with it here. he had not switched over to the Hammond V3 yet, which is the the organ that lots of people used, but and the one that I would uh, associate most strongly with Pigpen. Love Jerry's vocals and the harmonies on the chorus. Nice interlocking arrangement. Sort of three vocal parts going during the chorus. Nice chemistry between Phil's bass and Bob on the acoustic and Bill really charges it along. I love Jerry's guitar tone in these very early years. Nice solo from him on here. I think The Golden Road is actually one of the poppiest, most concise songs in their catalog. I think it could have been a hit with a bit more polish. It sounds like that time, too, that sort of, uh, well, 1967, the, as as that early, mid-60s, more sweet innocent sound is transitioning into psychedelia uh i think it would have been a perfect hit in 67 it's a shame uh i mean the band made it anyway quote unquote made it as in made it big anyway and their career probably would have taken a significantly different trajectory had they become pop stars right out of the gate um and perhaps a trajectory that many of us deadheads would not uh, view to be superior to the one they ended up taking but anyway it's too bad this song wasn't heard by more people because it's a great song and it reminds me of give me some lovin by the spencer davis group which the dead actually played 86 times from 84 through 90 as for the golden road they only played it seven times that we know of once in 1965 and the rest in 1967 which i think is a real shame all right, track two is Beat It On Down the Line. Its lyrics are as follows. Verse one, well, this job I've got is just a little too hard. I'm running out of money, Lord, I need more pay. I'm going to wake up in the morning, Lord, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to beat it on down the line. Chorus, I'm going down the line, uh, going down the line, repeated a few times. Uh, I'm going down. I'm going to beat it on down the line. There's repetitions in there. I'm glossing over. If you're a deadhead, you know this one all too well. Verse two, 
I'll be waiting at the station, Lord, when that train pulls on by, and I'm going back where I belong, and now I'm going north to my same old used-to-be, well now, down in Joe Brown's coal mine, then the chorus again, um, the chorus with an alteration, it's, uh, I said coal mine, whoa, coal mine, that sort of thing, uh, and then guitar solo, and then verse three, yeah, I'm going back to that shack way across the railroad track. Uh-huh, that's where I think I belong. Yes, and I got a sweet woman, Lord, yeah, who's waiting there for me. Well, that's where I'm going to make my happy home. And then the third chorus, uh, whoa, happy home, uh, happy home, uh, you know, same pattern as the previous two. Um, so great Americana sort of imagery here fits the happy-go-lucky outlaw image of both the band and their fans. Musically, it has a a five-beat false start that would become a, a thing in the live versions. They would discuss amongst themselves how many beats of the false start they should do. And, you know, sometimes one of them will shout out a really high number and they kind of chuckle and then uh, they'll do it. But, you know, they'll say 14, and then you can hear them kind of laughing as they get close to the end. Anyhow, that's always a fun little thing to pay attention to in shows. Um, This version here on the album, taken at a ferocious pace, it clocks in at least 30 seconds faster than even the fastest uh, of live versions that I've come across, at least. has a bit of a surf rock feel, uh, Jerry's solo especially, but also Phil's bass and the harmonies. Bill goes wild on the tambourine for the verses after Jerry's solo. Uh, must have been an overdub since he was playing the kit. Beat It On Down the Line was performed 322 times that we know of. Every year from 1966 through 93, except for 76. It was even played twice during the hiatus year of 1975. 77 is the lowest in that span, it was only played once in 77, March 20th at Winterland. And it's a good thing, too, that it was only played once in 77 and not in 76, because I listened to that Winterland one, and it is dreadfully slow for this song. Um, those years were not good years for a song like this that needs to be really fast, uh, as it is here on the album. Uh I think it peaked during the one drummer era, perhaps not surprising since it has to be so fast and it originated with one drummer here. Uh, It was played 39 times in 71, 63 times in 72. Uh, It's harder out of 86 shows. It's harder to find a a 72 show without a beat it on down the line, Uh, 46 times in 73 and 27 times in 74, but they didn't play as many shows in 74. So anyhow, um, I'll give the live history for each of these like I have done with the previous Dead Studio episodes, episode 25 about Working Man's Dead and 26 about American Beauty. Um, anyhow, and, and that's a, a theme of this album that it produced several songs that became real concert staples for them in the years that followed. And because it's, you know, a more simplistic song, by dead standards and was played so often I got to a point where I'd kind of grown when I saw it in the set list, but then uh, either last year or the year before 
when I was uh, listening to, maybe it was, no, it might, it must, I think it must have been two years ago. Uh, either way, um, when I was listening to Europe 72, one of the last two years on all the anniversaries, uh, when I got to the Dusseldorf show, which I still think is probably my favorite version of it, or it would be right up there. Um, you know, sometimes you just hear a version of something that's really good and it makes the song click for you. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, this is really good. Uh, I had that moment and now I really appreciate it as a song. And uh, it's cool to hear it played so fast here on the studio version. And with a bit more of a, a psychedelic flair with Pig's Vox organ and the kind of surf rock feel. Track three is Good Morning Little School Girl. Its lyrics are as follows. Verse one, good morning, little school girl. Can I come home with you? Tell your mama and your papa I'm a little schoolboy too. Come on now, pretty baby. I just can't help myself. You're so young and pretty. I don't need nobody else. And then the chorus, good morning, little school girl. Can I come home with you? Don't you hear me crying? Ow, hey. Verse two. I'm going to leave you, baby, about the break of day. On account of the way you treat me, I got to stay away. Come on now, pretty baby. Darling, come on home. You know I love you, baby. I got to get you all alone. And then the chorus again, and then a harmonica solo. Verse 3, I'm going to buy me an airplane and fly all over your town. Tell everybody, baby, Lord knows you're fine. Come on now, pretty baby. I just can't help myself. You're so young and pretty. I don't need nobody else. Then the chorus again. And then a bridge. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Can I come home with you? Repeated once. Tell your mama and your papa I'm a schoolboy too. I want to be your chauffeur. I want to ride your little machine. I want to be your chauffeur. I want to ride your little machine. I want to put a tiger baby. I want to put a tiger baby. I want to put a tiger baby. Hey, in your sweet little tank. Uh, and then the outro, um, sort of more of the same. Uh, so definitely a song that would come under fire if it were released today, but not unusual tone or subject matter for blues of this era and prior. And it is a cover. They didn't, uh, you know, write those, but, um, you know, don't, uh, you, you can, you know, take out the, the little and pretend that it's, uh, you know, and frankly, for all we know, it's, you know, just assume that it's talking about, uh, college freshmen. Uh, anyhow, musically speaking, has a great slinky groove. You know, you can tighten up and polish the rough around the edges elements that this album has, and they did, of course, in the years that followed, but you really can't teach having that collective groove, and they already had it here. I like the upbeat crashes from Bill on the intro, nice harmonica solo from Pigpen, and Pigpen's vocals are more polished than Bob's or Jerry's are at this point, And he was definitely their most commanding frontman at this juncture of their career. Uh, and arguably Bob, neither Bob nor Jerry never really passed him in that regard in the true sense of the word for a frontman. I think Jerry was a very captivating lead vocalist and a great storyteller and had other strengths as a singer 
uh, really fully embodied the characters and Hunter's lyrics and all sorts of things like that that I've talked about in other episodes. But in the true sense of having a a really um, just that commanding frontman persona that you think of with like a Mick Jagger or something, Robert Plant. Um, I think Pigpen was probably the closest that the dead ever had to that. Good Morning Little School Girl was performed 65 times that we know of every year from 66 through 70. And then on the shelf for 17 years, once in each of 87, 92, and 93, and five times in 95. Track four is Cold Rain and Snow. Its lyrics are as follows. While she's coming down the stairs, combing back her yellow hair, and I ain't going to be treated this old way, this old way, and I ain't going to be treated this old way. While she went up to her room, where she sang her faithful tune, while I'm going where those chilly winds don't blow, winds don't blow, while I'm going where those chilly winds don't blow. Well, I married me a wife, she's been trouble all my life, run me out in the cold rain and snow, rain and snow, run me out in the cold rain and snow. And it uh, repeats that a few times in the outro. So, typical sort of blues subject matter, but presented in a unique way, I think. I prefer how in later live versions, Jerry would start with the, well, I married me a wife line. Uh, it feels like the start of the story and makes the other lines make a bit more sense, I think. But uh, I've always liked this song musically, like Beat It On Down the Line. It's much brisker here on the debut than later live versions would be. I would say too fast for its own good in this case. I think the story shines better when it's a bit slower and more spacious. You got room to think about what's going on in the lyrics. Um, you know, when it sounds like trudging through the snow, it seems to fit the vibe a bit better than the kind of frantic take here. But anyhow, the Vox gives it a psychedelic flair that it didn't have later on. Some tasty vibrato on Jerry's guitar at the end of each chorus. You know, the rain and snow. Um, Billy is very busy with the snare fills and Cold Rain and Snow was performed 240 times that we know of every year from 1965 through 93, except 68 and 75. Track 5 is Sitting on Top of the World. Its lyrics are as follows. Verse 1, Mississippi River, so big and wide, blonde-haired woman on the other side. Chorus, now she's gone, 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 and I don't worry because I'm sitting on top of the world. Verse 2, I worked all summer, spring and fall, blonde-haired woman, the cause of it all. And then the chorus again, and then a guitar solo. Verse 3, I saw her in Dallas and El Paso, said, come back, baby, I need you so. Chorus again, then a repeat of verse 1, and then the chorus once more, and then an outro guitar solo. So, more of the Americana sort of imagery and wronged by a woman kind of blues subject matter, but in a very uh, simplistic, in a great way, tight kind of poppy package, very quick hitting with the verse and the chorus. Um, I mean, you're 
probably less than 30 seconds into the song by the time you hit the first chorus. Um, might even be in verse two by 30 seconds in. Uh, you, musically, you can really hear Jerry's folk influence here, uh, both the vocals and the banjo style riffing during the verses. I love the staggered riff, the don't, 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 and the stop starts throughout, uh, stopping abruptly in such a frenetic song has a thrilling effect, sort of like the brief moment of weightlessness at the top of a roller coaster. And like riding a roller coaster would actually be a great way to describe this song, Liquid Lightning soloing from Jerry. Uh, one of my favorites that I first heard on the uh, the few times that it was played at the end of the Europe 72 tour at the Lyceum uh, and Munich, I believe. Um, but anyhow, performed 41 times in total that we know of, 1966, but not in 67, and then every year from 68 through 72, and was permanently retired after that, sadly. Although it is one that would totally lose its punch if it were slowed down, and maybe they uh, realized in later years, maybe they thought about bringing it back, and then ah, I don't know if we can do it justice. And track six, drawing side one to a close, is Cream Puff War, the second of the two originals credited to Garcia alone. Lyrics, verse one, no, no, she can't take your mind and leave. I know it's just another trick she's got up her sleeve. I can't believe that she really wants you to die. After all, it's more than enough to pay for your lie. And then chorus, wait a minute, watch what you're doing with your time. All the endless ruins of the past must stay behind. Yeah, wait a minute, watch what you're doing with your time. All the endless ruins of the past must stay behind. Yeah, and then a guitar solo, and then the chorus again, and then verse two. Well, can't you see that you're killing each other's soul? Well, you're both out in the streets, and you got no place to go. Your constant baits are getting to be a bore. So go somewhere else and continue your cream puff war. Uh, so basically observing two people in a contentious relationship and telling them that they're wasting their time fighting over such silly things. And it uh, dismisses the validity of whatever they're fighting about by calling it a cream puff war, as in, you know, not substantial. You know, I'm certainly glad that Jerry teamed up with his old pal Robert Hunter after this, as Hunter is one of the best lyricists of all time, in my opinion. But Cream Puff War proves that Jerry had a decent knack for lyric writing uh, in his own right, and he did have an excellent touch for editing Hunter's work once they teamed up. He would often, you know, trim it down a bit and say, I don't think this part's necessary or quite on the same level as the rest, or if we leave this little bit unsaid, it'll give it a bit more mystery, that sort of thing. Uh, anyhow, musically speaking, Cream Puff War has a bit of a surf rock feel too. It has the first instance of Jerry, quote, going tiger, when he does that really fast, intense fanning sort of stuff. I think it's pretty slick songwriting for so early in their career, how it flips to three-four time for the chorus, lasting just two and two-thirds of a bar, uh, so that it takes up a clean two bars of the four, four base of the song. Um, 
you know, it's going along in four, four, and then the chorus goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, four, one. So that part's pretty cool. Um, nice scream from Jerry heading into his spindly solo and good vocals from him throughout. Bill mimics the staccato portion of the riff by playing on the snare on all four beats, uh, in several places, uh, adds to the energy of the song. And I think it's another gem like the golden road that had more pop potential than it ended up showing off and which the band, uh, kind of neglected this song too. only performed eight times that we know of seven times in 66 and once in 67. All right. And kicking off side two, we have morning dew lyrics are as follows. Walk me out in the morning dew, my honey. Walk me out in the morning dew today. I can't walk you out in the morning dew, my honey. I can't walk you out in the morning dew today. I thought I heard a baby cry this morning. I thought I heard a baby cry today. You didn't hear no baby cry this morning. You didn't hear no baby cry today. Where have all the people gone, my honey? Where have all the people gone today? There's no need for you to be worrying about all those people. You'll never see those people anyway. I thought I heard a young man mourn this morning. I thought I heard a young man mourn today. I thought I heard a young man mourn this morning. I can't walk you out in the morning dew today. Walk me out in the morning dew, my honey. Walk me out in the morning dew today. I'll walk you out in the morning dew, my honey. I guess it doesn't really matter anyway. And it repeats that several times over the outro. So describes basically waking up the morning after a, a nuclear apocalypse. I musically I love it starting with the well, first of all, lyrically I like the the effect that the repetition has and uh it does a good job of painting a a scary picture that seemed like it could be a reality at any time. Uh, you know, back then in the the Cold War raging and all that and we're uh approaching a similar sort of uh place on the doomsday clock these days. So uh Morning Dew's always one that can be relatable. Musically I love it starting with a symbol wash. Uh it's another song that I think benefited from being slowed down in the live setting. Lots of reverb on Jerry's vocals here. Sounds like he's singing in a ghost town and impassioned delivery from him as usual on Morning Dew. It always seems to me like it's one of the the ones that was uh, a favorite of his to sing. I saw an interview one time where he singled out Scarlet Begonias and Roe Jimmy as uh, two favorites of his to sing or his two favorites, but uh, it always seems like he's really into Morning Dew as well. They capture the dynamics and the mood pretty well here on the studio version, despite the brisk tempo. And it's one of the ones that became a, a signature piece for them in concert, performed 260 times that we know of every year from 1967 through 94, except for the hiatus year of 75 that only had four shows. All right, track eight is new Minglewood blues or new, new Minglewood blues. And then they recorded it again on shakedown street, I believe as the all new Minglewood blues, I think anyway, 
uh, lyrics. I was born in the desert, raised in a lion's den. I was born in the desert, raised in a lion's den. Oh, my number one occupation is stealing women from their men. Well, now the doctor call me crazy. Sometimes I am, sometimes I ain't. Said, now the doctor call me crazy. Sometimes I am, sometimes I ain't. Yes, and the preacher man call me sinner, but his little girl call me a saint. I always get a kick out of that line. Well, a couple shots of whiskey, women around here start looking good. I said, a couple shots of whiskey, women around here start looking good. A couple more shots of whiskey, I'm going down to mingle wood. And then goes back to the born in the desert part and repeats that once. Um, You know, goes back to it and then repeats once. So, you know, two more times total. Anyhow, uh, you know, more typical blues sort of fair. Musically speaking, Phil takes the bass for a bit of a walk here. Snarly vocals from Bob, but he's still basically a kid here. He wouldn't turn 20 until October of 67, so he doesn't exactly sound authentically menacing. Not that he ever did really, in my opinion, but I think he sounds a bit more convincing on it later in the 70s. Of all the future concert staples on here, I think New Minglewood probably sounds the most akin to how it would on stage in the ensuing years. Um, it's faster here with a few different vocal cadences from Bob, but mostly the same. Um, and it was performed 430 times that we know of. Uh, one of their most played songs it was played every year from 66 onward, except for 68 and 72 through 75 which, uh, in, interesting that that would, that's probably my favorite period. The, the one drummer era from, uh, well, it started in 71 and Mickey came back in 75, but 72 to 74. And I guess you could lump in 75 is probably my, my favorite era for the dead. And I will say this is not one of my you know absolute favorite songs. Um, I do like it in 77 especially when it was played a lot it averaged just under 38 plays per year from 77 through 81 all five of those years uh but once you get into the 80s i am not a huge fan of what they did to it as i discussed in whichever episode was talking about dave's picks 39 the the philly 83 show that came out back in the summer um Anyhow, uh, yeah, and also it would it would be too long at that point. But but anyhow, here it sounds good, and as I say, of the the future concert staples on this album, I think it sounds the most similar to how it usually did in the live setting. Well, apart from the one coming up which Phil said sounded the most like they did live at the time, but it was not really a staple. So speaking of which the album closes with Viola Lee blues, which the lyrics are as follows. The judge decreed it. The clerk, he wrote it clerk. He wrote it down. Indeed judge decreed it clerk. He wrote it down. Give you this jail sentence. You'll be Nashville bound. Some got six months, some got one solid, some got one solid year indeed, 
Some got six months, some got one solid year, but me and my buddies all got lifetime here. I wrote a letter, I mailed it in the, mailed it in the air indeed. I wrote a letter, I mailed it in the air. You may know by that I've got a friend somewhere. I wrote a letter, I mailed it in the, mailed it in the air indeed. I wrote a letter, I mailed it in the air. You know by that I've got a friend somewhere. And there are instrumentals between all of those verses. Uh, so chain gang sort of imagery about being imprisoned. And it's in fact a cover of a song that was likely inspired by a song called Chain Gang Blues that dates back to 1925. And how musically such a cool opening chord followed by a riff kind of similar to the Beatles' Hey Bulldog, which didn't come out until 1969, so obviously unrelated, unless John Lennon listened to this album and it inspired him. Anyhow, um, I love the cadence of the vocals on Viola Lee Blues, good harmonies. I love how the instrumental breaks get white hot and then stop on a dime and slip back into the verse. And the band do a great job of capturing the controlled chaos, runaway train, bursting at the seams sort of feel of the big jam between verse three and its reprise, uh, which takes up about half the song. Um, it, it's not the easiest thing to to capture that kind of feel in general, but especially in the recording studio. Uh, so they do a great job in that respect. Uh, Viola Lee Blues was only performed 36 times that we know of every year from 66 through 1970, and then not again, sadly. Could you imagine a Europe 72 Viola Lee with the, with how well they played primal songs like Caution over there and uh, you know Frankfurt, Turn On Your Love Light being one of the most ferocious? I think they could have done an insane Viola Lee over there had they chosen to. So anyhow, a great way to close out the album with one that sounds the most like seeing them in concert, sort of a, you know, hey, if you liked what you heard today, come find us in a venue near you. Okay, in terms of general thoughts about the album, I think it's one of the great psychedelic albums, very 1967 sounding. Um as some have pointed out, I know Robert Christigal mentioned this in uh, one of the like anniversary releases of this album, I think the 40th or something, um, said how a lot of so-called psychedelic albums from 67 are kind of more pop albums. This one's like pretty psychedelic, uh, but not in a, in a trippy way, really. Uh, they just all have that kind of buzz and the, the lysergic energy that, that kind of, you know, if you know, you know. Um, and I think it, uh, it sounds like an era. It sounds like the first era of the band, which, you know, Primal Dead, I would say is actually the second era. So that's would be 68, 69. It kind of starts later in 67, I guess, but really their first era from 65, through 67 was that dance band uh, ballroom sort of feel, the really energetic rave up sort of music, uh, you know, kind of like a, you know, a, a San Fran 
uh, version of the Yardbirds. Um, and, uh, and I think this album is, well, no, I don't think this is the only album of theirs that sounds like that version of them. So it's really cool in that respect. Um, you know, this is the, if you want to hear what it sounded like seeing them at one of the acid tests in 66, this is the album for that. This is the, the version of the band that played at those overall. It's just pretty wired, uh, you know, tempo wise and has that wired sound to it, that lysergic buzz, I think pig pen being on the Vox makes it sound kind of like the doors at times, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and as I said, the, it produced several, uh, well, four concert staples. Uh, if you rank the songs on the album by the number of times that they were played live, New Minglewood Blues played 430 times, Beat It On Down the Line 322 times, Morning Dew 260 times, Cold Rain and Snow 240 times. Like Those are songs that you see a lot in the set list, no matter pretty much no matter what subsequent era you're listening to. And then Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, big drop off just 65 times, Sitting on Top of the World 41, Viola Lee Blues 36, and then Cream Puff War and Gold, The Golden Road, the only originals on the album, only eight and seven plays that we know of live, uh, respectively, which is a shame because they're two of my favorites on the album, maybe because they're uh, live rarities, but uh, I do think that they are captured pretty well here, and I I would like to have heard them more often live, and maybe part of the reason the other ones um, don't jump out as much uh, at me on here is because I am aware of you know plenty of places where they're played better live, but. Um, yeah, I wish Cream Puff War and The Golden Road had been played more often. I would say those bottom four in general, Sitting on Top of the World, Viola Lee, Cream Puff and Golden Road are way underplayed. And I think New Minglewood is overplayed. It's probably my least favorite on the album, actually, but I still enjoy it. Uh, I think it was definitely past its best before date after the 70s, though. Overall, I think their debut is a pretty good encapsulation of their acidic spin on the blues and folk in particular and of all the psychedelic albums that came out in 67 i think this one is i won't uh speak out of turn and say the only but the it's the only one that comes to mind that really sounds like that uh, san francisco ballroom sort of version of the psychedelic experience which makes it a a must hear for that alone. In terms of placing it within the Dead's catalog, to be honest, I'm not sure exactly where I would put it. Uh, definitely wouldn't be at the top. I think American Beauty and Working Man's Dead are clearly the the top two in my opinion, and then um, most of the the ones from the '70s would be below that, like Wake of the Flood and Mars Hotel and Blues Rella and Terrapin. Um, I, uh, but I don't think it would be at the bottom either. I, I haven't really, there are still a few I haven't heard and I 
yeah, I'm not going to just pull it out of thin air on the fly, but I don't think it would be last. I, I think it's probably a little underrated by both fans and the band when you read uh, Phil and Bill's comments about it, which there's some truth to. I can hear that it's a little rough around the edges and they were still tightening up as a band for a few years after this, but uh, I still think it's pretty good and captures uh, the spirit of them at their genesis. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Slapshot, the reporter in there uh, will often say, well, I tried to capture the spirit of the thing. And I think the dead achieved that here at least. In terms of scoring and ranking the dead's debut, I'd probably go with a three and a half out of five or so. If you just took all of these songs um, and, you know, the, the best versions of them from their whole live career and put that on an album, but made it, you know, sound like it was from the same era and belonged together, it would be a killer. But I think because some of them are still in development stage or are played a little too fast and some issues like that, uh, it gets held back a bit. Uh, I actually think its strengths are the ones that didn't get played as often. Uh, Golden Road, Cream Puff War, Viola Lee Blues, Sitting on Top of the World. It does not appear on Acclaimed Music, the site that averages out uh, a song or album's finish across all published lists, which means that it's not even bubbling beneath the top 3,000 most celebrated albums of all time, which I think is a shame and inaccurate. Morning Dew is listed as bubbling under the all-time top 10,000 songs. Um, it's hard to say when I've only just heard it this week where I would put it in my personal list. I would probably be confident saying it's in my top 100. Um, not sure how much higher, though. Uh, you know, it's easy to, when it's the the one that you've just heard, think, oh, that's definitely in my top 25. And then you start doing the math like, oh, what about this one? What about this one? What? Oh, is it even top 50? So uh, I'll say top 100 for sure. I think it's definitely one that everybody should listen to to see what an iconic band sounded like at the start. And for sure, if you're a deadhead, don't uh, be a wanker like me and ignore it for years on end. All right, so that concludes our look at The Dead's debut. As I said at the outset, I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show, and the handles are in the description. If you have an Apple device and an appetite for a bit more content from me, consider subscribing to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the Apple Podcasts exclusive premium spinoff of the show. For $4.99 American per month, you get access to weekly subscriber-only bonus episodes, in addition to priority sequence for topic requests and 10% off of merchandise. And there is a one-month free trial. And as I said, uh, shoot me a line if you have a topic request, especially an artist matchup that you'd like me to do. If you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review uh, wherever you listen, those are very helpful to me. If you have a topic you're passionate about and you uh, 
think you have something you can add to the discussion around, consider starting your own show. It's a lot of fun, and if you sign up with my hosting service, Buzzsprout, you will get a $20 Amazon gift card courtesy of your association with me. And lastly, you may notice at the bottom of the description, the buy me a coffee link, the sort of virtual tip jar. No pressure, of course, but if you feel so inclined, it really uh, helps me stay awake as I listen to and analyze all of this great music for you all. And if you are listening on release day here, March 31st, today is my 27th birthday. So you know, if you feel like giving your, your doctor a birthday present, uh, coffee is always appreciated. All right. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you are new to the show, welcome. And I hope you liked what you heard and we'll stick around. And, uh, if you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for your loyalty. It means a lot. Next week, we will be talking about ACDC's Let There Be Rock album for its 45th anniversary. And the week after that will be Super Tramp, even in the quietest moments for its 45th. Looking forward to both of those. I've only talked about ACDC once, and that was November 2020. So it's been quite a while and have yet to discuss Super Tramp. But they are uh, a band that I quite enjoy and have seen once. I've seen ACDC once as well. Uh, so those should be good. All right. Class dismissed.